Our sermon text this morning is Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And in this passage, we read about a man of great worth. Now, when we hear that, we think about the people we might read about in the newspaper or hear about on TV, a a man we might hear is worth a great amount. For instance, uh, Bill Gates. Bill Gates, I I looked this up the other day. Bill Gates, it is said, uh, is the richest man in the United States. He is worth $67 billion. That's a lot of money. Um, Warren Buffett, right behind him, number two, is worth $53.5 billion. That is how much he is said to be worth. I... Have my I was looking through the list as I just kind of intrigued by it, and I found my old boss on the list. Now, I say my old boss when I worked for Enterprise Rent-A-Car Company in St. Louis. The, the, my boss's 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 boss. Jack Taylor was the guy who founded Enterprise, started it from scratch, had next to nothing, and, and uh, started it back in 1957. And now he is, he is worth, it said, billion. That's a pretty good startup there. He did did pretty well for himself. Worth 11.4 billion. We we throw this phrase about. He is worth this much. I would suggest, though, that how much money a man has or a woman has does little to say how much they are actually worth. In the eyes of God, there are things that are far more important than our bank accounts or our bottom lines. We see that in this passage here in Ruth, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Follow along now as I read from God's holy and inspired word. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. 
Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and she said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoke kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it tells us what makes us truly of great worth in your sight. It tells us what we can do to live out that worthiness. And it tells us the unspeakable joy of your gospel wherein we have found favor in your sight, though we are not your servants, but rather enemies apart from Christ. Show us your truth today. Speak to us. May your truth hide itself deep within our hearts that it might affect all things in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We see in verse 1 here that Naomi had a relative of her husband's told a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. And so we're introduced to a new character here at the beginning of chapter 2. We've, we've been looking mainly at at Naomi and Ruth, we had some backstory with Elimelech and, and his, chil- his children, and then, of course, there was Orpah, but it was mainly a story about Naomi and how Ruth had impacted her life. But now we find a new character, Boaz, and we are told that he is a worthy man. If we look in the King James or the New King James, I think, as well, it, it says something a little bit different here. It says that he was a wealthy man, which indeed would be true. He he was a landowner who had many people working for him, so he had some wealth. That's definitely true, and that is an appropriate way to translate this term here. And it makes sense if you think about it, somebody being worthy or being wealthy, a person of great worth, we often think of him as being in terms of being one of great wealth, don't we? Like we said at the beginning. And so, It could be translated, he was a wealthy man. But I think the context suggests that that is not what is being intended to say. If it is being intended, it's a secondary meaning. The reason I say that is because the same phrase is used in another place in the book of Ruth. A chapter later, in chapter 3, verse 11, we'll find the words said about a person 
All my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman, or if we choose to translate it as wealthy, a wealthy woman. Who is it talking about at that place? Well, it's talking about Ruth. And Ruth, of course, was the farthest thing from wealthy. She had nothing. She had come from Moab with Naomi, with the shirt on her back, as you will, and with nothing else. They were completely dependent on the generosity of others, on the kindness of others, on the provision of God in the midst of her lack. She was anything but wealthy. And so when we see this same phrase used here a chapter earlier, I think that we are to see it as being not so much wealthy, but worthiness that is being talked about here with Boaz. He is a man of true worth, we see in this passage. And we see that a man of true worth knows that blessings come from God. A man of true worth knows that blessings come from God. He also keeps the law, not just out of, well, not just to the letter. Let's say he keeps the law, not just in letter, but in spirit. So a man of true worth knows that blessings come from God. He keeps the law in spirit, not just to the letter. And he considers not just self-interest, but the interests of others. We see all these things in Boaz. Let's take a look here first in verse 2. You might recall at the end of chapter 1, actually, it tells us that, that Ruth... And Naomi came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. That was to point us forward to the fact that, that this harvest was coming and there was a harvest not just of barley, but a harvest of God's faithfulness in their lives that was truly coming. And we begin to see this harvest of faithfulness, this harvest of grace, this harvest of God's goodness here in chapter 2. In verse 2 of that chapter, Ruth the Moabite says to Naomi, let me go out and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Now, we don't necessarily understand this idea of gleaning. What was meant by gleaning? And the idea was that the law of God said that a landowner would have people working in his fields and they would harvest his crop. But when they did... They were to go through one time and one time only. And afterwards, the leftover was to be left for other people. Deuteronomy 24 talks about this. It says, starting in verse 19, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget or leave behind a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And when you beat out your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. 
you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. You see, what would happen is, is they'd go through and, and, and one person would, would cut the barley and the next person would come behind and, and gather it. And, and when you harvest by hand, there's, it, it, it's a very inefficient way to do it. There's a lot that gets left behind. And the same can be with, with I understand, olive trees and, and grapevines. Uh, oftentimes when you go through, when, when the first olives or the first grapes become ripe, only, only about two-thirds of them are actually ripe at first. And so normally what you would do is you would collect those, and, and if you left your own devices, you'd come back later when the other ones ripen. So this would be the idea of how people would normally harvest their crops. But God's law says no. Do not come back a second time. That, that hand-harvested wheat or barley that's been left behind should be left for the fatherless and the sojourner and the widow. Those grapes, those olives that had not ripened at the first harvest should be left. And when they ripen, you are not to go back to get those. They should be left for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And who is it that Ruth is but the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow? And that culture in that day and in much of the world even today, those who were sojourners, foreigners, those who were orphans left without families, those who were widows were in a very precarious position. There was nobody to provide for them, nobody to protect them, nobody to care for them. And this is where Ruth found herself. And so it was that the law of God said that you must leave these crops for them so that they can just come into your field and take these things. Now there's something about that that seems patently unfair to me. Maybe it does to you too. It's my field. I'm the one who worked hard to plant those things. I'm the one who prepared that all. It's mine. And so what you're telling me is just random people can just walk into my fields and take the leftovers that are there? They haven't worked at all for it. They haven't done anything. They haven't even passed a drug test for it. And they can just come in and take it. Hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? But that's the mind of God. The mind of God is one that would provide for those who have great need. Not because they deserve it, but because they need it. And we should be thankful that this is the mind of God because this is how God has provided for us as well. Not because we have deserved it, but because of our great need. So we see in verse 3 that Ruth set out and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she came upon, we were told she happened to come upon the part of the field belonging to Boaz. I love the, the King James language for this verse especially. Says, and her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz. It was her hap to do that. 
She just happened to, by chance, we're told. Well, not strictly by chance. Of course, God's providence was directing this all. We remember last week we talked about how God providentially governs all things. What are God's works of providence? The shorter catechism asks. They are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all his actions, all their actions. Indeed, Ruth coming to Boaz's field was part of that providential governing. What the author is telling us here was that Ruth had no plans to go specifically to Boaz's field. She didn't ask somebody, which field is Boaz's? Because I think that would be the best one for me to go to. She just went out looking for a field that she could glean in. And as it turned out, the field she came to was Boaz's. Now it's a wonderful thing that God providentially rules things, that he is sovereign over all things, that he governs in such a way because it means that we can't derail God's plans. I think we fear that sometimes, don't we? We we all want to be in the center of God's will, if you will. We want to be doing exactly what God would have us do in each situation. And sometimes we fear that if we step out of the center of that will, if we make the wrong decision, if we turn left where God wanted us to turn right, now we're off the path that he had set for us and there's no way we can ever get back to it and we've ruined God's plans for our lives. That train has been derailed and there's no way we can get back on the track. Sometimes we think that way, don't we? But God rules providentially even over those bad decisions that we make, those wrong decisions that we've made. He rules in such a way, mysteriously, in a way that we can't understand. That even as we do really dumb things, he is still governing. He still is there. And so his providence can be no more overridden than than us being able to travel through time, for instance. It's just impossible. And even if we could travel through time, God's providence would still be over that. Because he rules providentially. And so when we see that she happened to come upon this field, it of course was no surprise to God. And behold, verse 4 tells us, Boaz came from Bethlehem, He says to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answer, the Lord bless you. This was the workplace atmosphere. (laughs) How wonderful it is that I get to work at a church. I can't explain to you how joyful that is for me. That I'm in a place where the Lord's name is exalted. I've not always been at a church. I've worked in other places where when the names of the Lord was used, it was not used in such a kind way, in such a joyful way, in such an exalting way. And that's not as pleasant. But what a joy it is that I get to work in such a place. And that was the kind of workplace that Boaz owned. To work for him was the place where they responded to one another, the Lord be with you, the Lord bless you. Now the narrator could tell us all kinds of things in this story. He doesn't tell us a lot of details. He doesn't tell us what 
Boaz was thinking about as he came from Bethlehem to the field. He doesn't tell us what Boaz had for dinner the night before. He doesn't tell us what Boaz was wearing that day. He doesn't tell us the last conversation he had with somebody before he came to the field. He doesn't tell us anything else that he had said before that. But what he does tell us is that he proclaimed, the Lord be with you. And that they responded, the Lord bless you. The narrator is highlighting the fact that Boaz realizes the Lord's sovereignty over the situation. He realizes that every blessing comes from him. It would be easy for Boaz to think, this field is my field. I've done the work here. I've, I've hired these people. This is mine, and, and, and it's through my hard work. I've earned it. And it would be easy for us to think that way too, oftentimes. But we, like Boaz, must realize that all blessings come from God, no matter how big or small they are. And if we begin to have this mindset, if we begin to understand this and remember this, that no matter what comes our way, what blessing we have, whether it's something that just drops in our lap or even those blessings that we have worked incredibly hard to achieve, if we remember that they are blessings from the hand of God, it will transform our mindsets. It will transform our attitudes. We will become more thankful Jesus tells a story in Luke 7. He says, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of them both. And then Jesus asked the Pharisee, Simon, Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said, you have judged rightly. You see, his his thankfulness toward Jesus, or, or his thankfulness toward the lender, Jesus says, is going to be greater because he had a greater debt forgiven. Because he realized the amount of his blessing. And so he was more thankful as a result. We need to realize the graciousness of God to us. Jesus tells another story. He tells a story that is, I think, in, in my mind, my natural mind, this is my least favorite story in the Bible. Not that I don't think it's a good story, but it just rubs me the wrong way. It's a story about workers in the field. And basically, Jesus says that a guy hired some workers and said, come work for me for the day. And I'll pay you a day's wages. And then he began to see that he wasn't going to get enough work done. So a couple hours later, he hired some more workers. And then a couple hours later, he hired some more workers. And then at the very end of the day, when there was just an hour left, he hired yet more workers so that the work could be done. And then at the end of the day, when he paid them out, those workers that had only worked one hour, he paid a full day's wages to them, which made the earlier workers who had shown up earlier really excited because if those guys who only worked an hour got a full day's wages just imagine how much I'm going to get and yet they only received a full day's wages as well and 
my heart sympathizes with those workers who worked the whole day. I, I just naturally, this is me, maybe you're different, but my natural inclination is to say, that's not fair. They worked eight times as long as these other guys. And they didn't get paid as much. That's just not fair. That's my natural reaction. And yet, as Jesus says, what did I not agree to pay you a day's wages for a day's work? You got what you deserved. If I choose to be gracious and kind with my money and pay more out to other people, of what consequence is that to you? You see, the reason I have a problem with that story, and if you have a problem with it, the reason you have a problem with it, is because we identify with the people who earned a day's wage. Because we identify with those people who worked hard all day long. We think of ourselves in that same way. We think that we've worked hard and we've deserved the blessing of God. When in reality, we ought to see ourselves with those who came later. Those who have been graciously blessed, gotten far more than they deserved. If we identified with them instead, our attitude toward that story becomes radically different. And that is who we are. We are those who don't deserve anything but God's judgment. And yet we get his grace. What a blessing. And Boaz was the kind of person who understood this. He understood that he existed not just to receive blessings from God, to receive grace from God, but to be a conduit of those blessings, to be a conduit of that grace so that others might be blessed through him. And this profoundly shapes the way that Boaz keeps the law. We talked about the, the gleaning law and how it said that you had to, you had to leave this portion of your field so that others could come and get it. But, but Boaz doesn't see this as a perfunctory duty. He sees this as something that he can joyfully and, and, and delighting in it fulfill. You know, the 119th Psalm is the longest psalm and, and it deals with the word of God. And I, I was looking just this morning actually in this passage and and I saw that there, there are 10 different places in that psalm where it speaks of delighting in the law of the Lord, delighting in the commands of the Lord, delighting in his law. Is that our attitude toward the law? Do we delight in it? I know I don't always. Far too often I see it as a set of rules that I have to follow, that I don't really long to follow. But Boaz seems to want to follow it. He seems to delight in it. He seems to enjoy imaging God to a watching world. He seems to enjoy being a blessing to others, not just following the, the letter of the law, but actually the spirit of the law. It says in verse 8, he told Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. He says, don't, don't just, 
know, he could have very easily said, you know, you spent a little bit of time in my field, you know, now go freeload somewhere else. I've kind of kept my end of the deal here. I left some for you. Now go, go somewhere else. But he doesn't. He delights in her being there that he can be a conduit of blessing to her. He says, let your eyes be on the field that my workers are reaping. Follow behind them. And beyond that, when you're thirsty, go, go and get a drink from the water that my servants have gotten. He's going above and beyond. He wants to bless to be a blessing to others. And in all of this we see that Boaz considers not just his self-interest, but the well-being of others. God blesses us that we might bless others. That's how it always has been. God blesses his people so that they might be a blessing to others. That's what he proclaimed to Abraham. That all the families in the earth might be blessed through him. And Ruth, the Moabite, the foreigner, the stranger in a strange land, is affected by this. She says, why have I found favor in your eyes? And Boaz says to her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law, I've heard of. And and he says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. He, he doesn't just say, though, may the Lord repay you. He says, let me be the vehicle through which you are repaid by the Lord for your faithfulness. He longs to reward faithfulness in others, to encourage such faithfulness. What a good man. We see him say that this God that you've come here to shelter under his wings is a God of provision, a God of grace, a God of love. And I will be the vehicle of this God's blessing to you. And it's interesting. Ruth says in verse 13, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And I was reminded of the fact in that those words, uh, though, you know, to your servant, though I am not your servant, of how much Boaz points us to God, how much he images God to us. For we, likewise, were not servants of God, but he saw those things that were not as if they were, and has made us his servants, though we were enemies. And beyond that, has made us his children, sons and daughters of the Most High. What a blessing, all through Christ Jesus, through what he has done for us, through his death on the cross in our place. And since he has died for us, we must live for him. Yes, Boaz was a worthy man, a man of great worth, but he, of course, points us to the ultimate man of great worth, Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who kept the law of God, not just to the letter, but in spirit, who kept it not just some of the time, not just most of the time, but all of the time, perfectly, that his sacrifice on our behalf might be that of a holy and spotless lamb, that his righteousness might one day become our righteousness, that it might enable us to stand before a holy God 
and to escape the wrath of judgment. He is one who knows that blessings come from God and longs to be a conduit of those blessings. For every blessing we have comes only through the union with Christ that we have by faith. There is no other blessing that we might have. And he, of course, considers not just his self-interest, but the well-being of others. The well-being of you and of me. For on Calvary's cross, it was not his self-interest that he was concerned with. But he looked at you. And he looked at me. And he graciously, lovingly, thoughtfully, and selflessly absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. That we might have forgiveness. That is what makes somebody a man of true worth. But here's the great thing in closing. We who trust in Christ Jesus by faith are united with him. We, the church, are Christ's bride. What happens if Bill Gates, well, Bill Gates is married. Let's say, let's say Jack Taylor, does, he, he's divorced now. He's worth $11.4 billion. What happens if he gets married? His wife is worth a lot. <laughs> you my brothers and sisters in Christ, the church are the bride of Christ, the true man of great worth. And so, by virtue of your marriage to the Prince of Peace, to the King of Glory, you too are of great worth. Let us live our lives in such a way that exemplifies this worth that has been bestowed upon us by the gracious God of the universe. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great gift. What a blessing it is. You have shown us such amazing grace. While we were enemies, you have made us children. While we were ugly, you have made us beautiful. While we were strangers, you have brought us in. You have made us your own. You have loved us, though we were unlovely. And you have deemed us to be of great worth. And so it is. Thank you for your amazing grace. In Christ Jesus' name.